Section 18 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary II, Chapter 1, Part 3. The campaign of 1677 being concluded, the Orange Hero, having nothing better to do, condescended to go in person to seek the hand of one of the finest girls in Europe and the presumptive heiress of Great Britain. For this purpose, he set sail from Holland and arrived at Harwich after a stormy passage, October the 9th or the 15th of the same year. Having disposed himself to act the wooer, he came, says Sir William Temple, like a trusty lover, post from Harwich to Newmarket, where his uncles, Charles II and James Duke of York, were enjoying the October Newmarket meeting. Charles had a shabby palace there, to which his nephew instantly repaired. Lord Arlington, the Prime Minister, waited on him at his alighting. My Lord Treasurer Danby and I, continues Sir William Temple, went together to wait on the prince, but met him on the middle of the stairs, involved in a great crowd, coming down to the king. He whispered to us both, that he must desire me to answer for him, and my lord treasurer Danby, so that they might, from that time, enter into business and conversation, as if they were of longer acquaintance. Which was a wise strain, considering his lordship's credit at court at that time. It much shocked my lord Arlington. This means that William demanded of Temple an introduction to Danby, with whom he was not personally acquainted, but with such kindred souls, a deep and lasting intimacy soon was established. The Prince of Orange was very kindly received by King Charles and the Duke of York, who both strove to enter into discussions of business, which they were both surprised and diverted to observe how dexterously he avoided. So King Charles, says Temple, bade me find out the reason of it. The Prince of Orange told me, he was resolved to see the young princess before he entered into affairs and to proceed in that before the other affairs of the peace. The fact was, he did not mean to make peace, but to play the impassioned lover as well as he could and obtain her from the good nature of his uncle Charles and then trust to his alliance with the Protestant heiress of England to force the continuance of the war with France he could not effect being in love with his cousin before he saw her, and for this happiness he showed so much impatience that his uncle Charles said, laughing like a good-for-nothing person as he was, at a delicacy which would have been most respectable if it had been real. He supposed his whims must be humored. And leaving Newmarket, some days before his inclination, he escorted the orange to Whitehall and presented him as a suitor to his fair niece. The prince, proceeds his friend Temple, upon the sight of the Princess Mary, was so pleased with her person, and all those signs of such a humor as had been described to him, that he immediately made his suit to the king, which was very well received, and assented to, but with this condition, that the terms of a peace abroad might first be agreed on between them. The Prince of Orange excused himself and said, he must end his marriage before he began the peace treaty whether he deemed marriage and peace incompatible he did not add but his expressions though perfectly consistent with his usual measures were not very suitable to the lover-like impatience he affected his allies he growled 
would be apt to believe he had made this match at their cost, and for his part, he would never sell his honor for a wife. This gentleman-like speech availed not, and the king continued so positive for three or four days, that my lord treasurer, that is Danby, and I began to doubt the whole business would break upon this punctilio, says Sir William Temple, adding, about that time, I chanced to go to the prince at supper, and found him in the worst humor I ever saw. He told me that he repented coming into England, and resolved that he would stay but two days longer, and then be gone, if the king continued in the mind he was, of treating of the peace before he was married, but that before he went, the king must choose how they should live hereafter, for he was sure it must be either like the greatest friends or the greatest enemies and desired me to let his majesty know so next morning, and give him an account of what he should say upon it. This was abundantly insolent, even supposing William owed no more to his uncle than according to the general history version, but when we see him raised from the dust, loaded with benefits, and put in a position to assume this arrogant tone, undeniable facts, allowed even by the partial pen of Temple, the hero of Nassau assumes the ugly semblance of an ungrateful little person, a very spoiled mannequin withal, in a most ill-behaved humor. Careless, easy Charles, who let every man, woman, and child have its own way, that plagued him into compliance, was the very person with whom such airs had their intended effect. Sir William Temple having communicated to his sovereign this polite speech of defiance in his own palace, Charles replied, after listening with great attention, Well, I never yet was deceived in judging of a man's honesty by his looks, and if I am not deceived in the prince's face, he is the honestest man in the world. I will trust him. He shall have his wife. You go, Sir William Temple, and tell my brother so, and that it is a thing I am resolved on. I did so, continues Sir William Temple and the Duke of York seemed at first a little surprised, but when I had done, he said, The king shall be obeyed, and I will be glad if all his subjects would learn of me to obey him. I do tell him my opinion very freely upon all things, but when I know his positive pleasure on a point, I obey him. From the Duke of York I went, continues Temple, to the Prince of Orange, and told him my story, which he could hardly at first believe, but he embraced me and told me I had made him a very happy man, and very unexpectedly, so I left him to give the king an account of what had passed. As I went through the antechamber of the Prince of Orange, I encountered Lord Treasurer Danby and told him my story. Lord Treasurer undertook to adjust all between the king and the Prince of Orange. This he did so well that the match was declared that evening in the cabinet council. Then the Prince of Orange requested an interview with his uncle, the Duke of York, in which he declared that he had something to say to him about an affair, which was the chief cause of his coming to England. This was to desire that he might have the happiness to be nearer related to him by marrying the Lady Mary. The Duke replied that he had all the esteem for him he could desire, but till they had brought to a conclusion the affair of war or peace, that discourse must be delayed. The Duke mentioned the conversation to King Charles in the evening, who owned that he had authorized the application of the Prince of Orange. 
Some private negotiation had taken place between the Duke of York and Louis the Fourteenth respecting the marriage of the Lady Mary and the Dauphin. This treaty had degenerated into a proposal for her from the Prince de Conti, which had been rejected by the Duke of York with infinite scorn. He considered that the heir of France alone was worthy of the hand of his beautiful Mary. Court gossip had declared the suit of the Prince of Orange was as unacceptable to her as to her father, and that her heart was already given to a handsome young Scotch lord, on whom her father would rather have bestowed her than on his nephew. How the poor bride approved of the match is a point that none of these diplomatists think it worth while to mention, for her manner of receiving the news we must refer to the unprinted pages of her confidential friend and tutor, Dr. Lake. The announcement was made to Mary, October 21st. That day, writes Dr. Lake, the Duke of York dined at Whitehall, and after dinner came to St. James's, which was his family residence. He led his eldest daughter, the Lady Mary, into her closet, and told her of the marriage designed between her and the Prince of Orange, whereupon Her Highness wept all the afternoon, and all the following day. The same evening, the marriage was formally announced in the Privy Council the Duke of York, assuring the members of it, that however he was represented abroad, he did herein and would, in all his actions, endeavor to ensure the security and peace of the kingdom, and that he would never hinder his children from being educated in the religion of the Church of England, which caused great joy in the council. The next day, the Privy Council came to congratulate the yet weeping bride, and Lord Chancellor Finch made her a complimentary speech. It appears that the prince shared in these congratulations and was by her side when they were made. The day after, the judges complimented and congratulated their affianced highnesses. Lord Justice Rainsford, speaking to my Lady Mary in the name of the rest, after which they all kissed her hand. The poor princess had several deputations to receive on October 24th in company with her betrothed. These were the Lord Mayor and Aldermen, the civilians of Doctors' Commons, and the commercial companies that her father had founded. She had to listen to speeches congratulatory on an event for which her heart was oppressed and her eyes still streaming. The citizens gave a grand feast to show their loyal joy at the pure Protestantism of this alliance on the 29th of October, when Her Highness the Bride, accompanied by her sister, the Lady Anne, and her stepmother, the Duchess of York, witnessed the civic procession from the house of Sir Edward Waldo in Cheapside, where they sat under a canopy of state, and afterwards partook of the banquet at Guildhall. The marriage was appointed for the Prince of Orange's birthday, being Sunday, November 4th, old style. How startled would have been the persons who assembled round the altar, dressed in the bride's bedchamber in St. James's Palace, could they have looked forward and been aware of what was to happen on the 11th anniversary of that date? There was collected in the Lady Mary's bedchamber at nine o'clock at night to witness or assist at the ceremony. King Charles II, his Queen Catherine, the Duke of York, and his young Duchess, Mary Beatrice of Modena, who was then hourly expected to bring an heir to England. These, with the bride and bridegroom, and Compton, Bishop of London, the bride's preceptor, who performed the ceremony, were all there that were ostensibly present, the marriage being strictly private. The official attendants of all these distinguished personages were, nevertheless, admitted, forming altogether a group sufficiently large 
for nuptials in a bedchamber, and more than was wished by the sad bride. King Charles gave away his niece, and overbore her dejection by his noisy joviality. He hurried the bride and bridegroom to the altar, by saying to Compton, Come, bishop, make all the haste you can, lest my sister, the Duchess of York here, should bring us a boy, and then the marriage will be disappointed. Here was a slight hint, that he saw which way the hopes of the orange prince were tending. In answer to the question, Who gives this woman? King Charles exclaimed with emphasis, I do, which words were an interpolation on the marriage service. When the Prince of Orange endowed his bride with all his worldly goods, he placed a handful of gold and silver coins on the open book. King Charles told his niece to gather it up and put it all in her pocket, for twas all clear gain. After this ceremony was concluded, the bride and the royal family received the congratulations of the court and of the foreign ambassadors, among whom Barillon, the French ambassador, appeared remarkably discontented. Sir Walter Scott certainly never saw Dr. Lake's manuscript, but by some poetical divination, he anticipated King Charles's behavior that night, when in his marmion he affirms, Queen Catherine's hand the stocking threw, and bluff King Hal the curtain drew. For at eleven, the prince and princess of Orange retired to rest, and all the ceremonies took place, which were then national. These were, at that time, breaking cake and drinking posettes, in the possession of all those who assisted at the marriage. King Charles drew the curtains with his own royal hand, and departed, shouting, St. George for England! The next morning the Prince of Orange, by his favorite Bentict, sent his princess a magnificent gift of jewels to the amount of forty thousand pounds. The Lord Mayor came with congratulations to the Prince and Princess of Orange, and the same routine of compliments from the high officials that had waited on the princess previously, now were repeated to her on account of her marriage. This Protestant alliance was so highly popular in Scotland, that it was celebrated with extraordinary and quaint festivities, being announced with great pomp by the Duke of Lauderdale at Edinburgh, at the town Mercat Cross, which was hung with tapestry, and embellished with an arbor hung with many hundreds of oranges. His grace, with the Lord Provost, and as many of the civic magistrates and great nobles as it could hold, ascending to this hymeneal temple, entered it, and there drank the good health of their highnesses, the prince and princess, next of their royal highnesses, the duke and duchess of York, then the queens, and last of all the kings, during which the cannon played from the castle, all the conduits from the cross ran with wine, and many voiders of sweetmeats were tossed among the people, who were loud and long in their applause. Great bonfires were kindled as in London, and the popular rejoicings were prolonged till a late hour. Two days after the marriage, the bride was actually disinherited of her expectations on the throne of Great Britain, by the birth of a brother, who seemed sprightly and likely to live. The Prince of Orange had the compliment paid him, of standing sponsor to this unwelcome relative, when it was baptized, November 8th. The Lady Governess Villiers stood godmother by proxy, for one of her charges, the young Princess Isabella. The ill humor of the Prince of Orange now became sufficiently visible to the courtiers. As for his unhappy bride, she is never mentioned by her tutor, Dr. Lake, excepting as in tears. She had, when married, and for some days afterwards, an excuse for her sadness, 
in the alarming illness of her sister, Lady Anne, whom at that point she passionately loved. Lady Anne is not named as being present at her sister's nuptials, an absence that is unaccounted for, excepting by Dr. Lake, who says, Her Highness, the Lady Anne, having been sick for several days, appeared to have the smallpox. She had most likely taken the infection when visiting the city. I was commanded, added Dr. Lake, not to go to her chamber to read prayers to her, because of my attendance on the Princess of Orange and on the other children. These were Lady Isabella and the newborn Charles, who could have dispensed with his spiritual exhortations. This troubled me, he resumes, the more because the nurse of the Lady Anne was a very busy, zealous Roman Catholic, and would probably discompose her highness if she had an opportunity. Wherefore, November 11th, I waited on the Lady Governess, that is Lady Frances Villiers, and suggested this to her. She bade me, do what I thought fit. But little satisfied with what she said to me, I addressed myself to the Bishop of London, who commanded me to wait constantly on Her Highness Lady Anne, and to do all suitable offices ministerial, incumbent on me. The parental tenderness of the Duke of York had enjoined that all communication must be cut off between his daughters, lest the infection of this plague of smallpox should be communicated to the Princess of Orange, as if he had anticipated how fatal it was one day to be to her. Dr. Lake was not permitted, if he continued his attendance on the Princess Anne, to see the Princess of Orange. I thought it my duty, he says, before I went to Her Highness Lady Anne, to take my leave of the princess, who designed to depart for Holland with her husband the Friday next, I perceived her eyes full of tears, and herself very disconsolate, not only for her sister's illness, but on account of the prince urging her to remove her residence to Whitehall, to which the princess would, by no means, be persuaded. The reason the prince wished to quit St. James's was because the smallpox was raging there like a plague, besides her sister, the Lady Villiers, and several of her father's household, were sickening with this fatal disorder. But the disconsolate bride chose to run all risks, rather than quit her father one hour, before she had to commence her unwelcome banishment. Dr. Lake tried his reasoning powers to convince the Princess of Orange of the propriety of this measure, but in vain. He then took the opportunity of preferring a request concerning his own interest, I had the honor to retire with her to her closet, continues Dr. Lake, and I call God to witness that I never said there or elsewhere anything contrary to the Holy Scriptures or to the discipline of the Church of England, and I hoped that the things in which I had instructed her might still remain with her. I said, I had been with her seven years, and that no person who hath lived so long at court, but did make a far greater advantage than I have done having gotten but one hundred pounds a year. Wherefore, I did humbly request Her Highness that at her departure she would recommend me to the King and the Bishop of London, and that I would endeavor to requite the favor by being very careful of the right instruction of the Lady Anne, her sister, of whom I had all the assurances in the world that she would be very good. Finally, I wish Her Highness all prosperity." and that God would bless her, and show her favor in the sight of the strange people among whom she was going. Whereupon I kneeled down and kissed her gown. Her Highness of Orange gave me thanks for all my kindnesses, and assured me, 
that she would do all that she could for me. She could say no more for excessive weeping, so she turned her back and went into her bedroom. At three o'clock, I went to the Lady Anne, and considering her distemper, found her very well, without headache or pain in her back or fever. I read prayers to her. This was on Sunday, November the 11th, the Princess of Orange having been married a week. Notwithstanding all the remonstrances of her husband and her own danger of infection, the bride carried her point and claved to her paternal home at St. James's Palace to the last moment of her stay in England. Meantime, the Duke of York kept her from seeing her sister Anne, who became worse from day to day as the disease approached its climax. Her Highness Lady Anne, says Dr. Lake, was somewhat giddy and very much disordered. She requested me not to leave her and recommended to me the care of her foster sister's instruction in the Protestant religion. At night, I christened her nurse's child, Mary. This was the Catholic nurse of whom Compline, Bishop of London, expressed so much apprehension. How she came to permit the Church of England chaplain to christen her baby is not explained. The 15th of November was the Queen's birthday, which was celebrated with double pomp on account of her niece's marriage. From Dr. Lake, it is impossible to gather the slightest hint of the bridal costume or of any particular of the dress of the bride, excepting that Her Royal Highness attired herself for that ball very richly and wore all her jewels. She was very sad. The prince, her husband, was as sullen. He never spoke to her the whole evening, and his brutality was remarked by everyone there. Yet the artists and the poets of England had combined to make that evening a scene of enchantment and delight. All seemed replete with joy and mirth, excepting the disconsolate Mary, who expected that she should have, before she retired to rest, to doff her courtly robes and jewels and embark on board the yacht that was to take her to Holland. On this account, the officials of the household of her father and those of her own maiden establishment in England were permitted to kiss her hand at the ball and to take leave of her, which they did, at eight o'clock in the evening. The epithalamium of this wedlock was from the pen of the courtly veteran, Waller, and was sung that night. As once the lion honey gave, out of the strong such sweetness came, a royal hero, no less brave, produced this sweet, this lovely dame. To her the prince that did oppose Gaul's mighty armies in the field, and Holland from prevailing foes, could so well free himself does yield. Not Belgia's fleets, his high command, which triumph where the sun does rise, not all the force he leads by land could guard him from her conquering eyes. Orange with youth experience has, in action young, in counsel old. Orange is what Augustus was, brave, wary, provident, and bold. On that fair tree which bears his name, blossoms and fruit at once are found. In him we all admire the same, his flowery youth with wisdom crowned. Thrice happy pair, so near allied, in royal blood and virtue too. Now love has you together tied, may none the triple knot undo. The wind that night, setting in easterly, gave the poor bride a reprieve, and she, in consequence, remained by the paternal side all the next day, November the 16th, in the home palace of St. James. The perversity of the wind did not ameliorate the temper of her husband. He was excessively impatient of remaining in England to witness the continuance of festivities, dancing and rejoicing. 
This day, says Dr. Lake, the court began to whisper of the sullenness and clownishness of the Prince of Orange. It was observed that he took no notice of his bride at the play, nor did he come to see her at St. James's the day before their departure. Dr. Lake and the indignant household of the princess at St. James's, we see, blamed this conduct as unprovoked brutality, but that the prince was not angry without cause is obvious, being secretly exasperated at the unwelcome birth of Mary's young brother, he was not inclined, as his marriage bargain was much depreciated in value, to lose the beauty of his young bride as well as her kingdom. He was displeased, and not unjustly, at her obstinacy in continuing to risk her life and charms of person, surrounded by the infection at the palace of St. James. The maids of honor of the queen, the Duchess of York, and especially the Princess Anne, were enraged at the rude behavior of the Dutch prince. They spoke of him at first as the Dutch monster, till they found for him the name of Caliban, a sobriquet which Lady Anne, at least, never forgot. The Lady Anne being dreadfully ill during the days when her sister's departure hung on the caprice of the wind, and the paternal care of the Duke of York, deemed that any farewell between this loving pair would be dangerous for each. He gave orders that whenever the Princess of Orange actually went away, the fact was to be carefully concealed from Anne, lest it should have a fatal effect on her. The Palace of St. James was still reeking with infection. Several of the official attendants of the ducal court were dying or dead. The Lady Governess, Frances Villiers, was desperately ill. She was to have accompanied the Princess of Orange on her voyage, but it was impossible. Dr. Lake thus enumerates, with a foreboding heart, the disasters accompanying this marriage. There were many unlucky circumstances that did seem to retard and embitter the departure of the Princess of Orange, as the sickness of the Lady Anne, the danger of the Lady Governess, that is Villiers, who was left behind, and her husband, Sir Edward Villiers, the master of the horse to the Princess of Orange, he too was obliged to stay in England. Likewise, the sudden death of Mr. Hemlock, her nurse's father, which happened at St. James's Palace this night, the death and burial of the Archbishop of Canterbury, her godfather, the illness of Mrs. Trelawney's father and uncle, as also Mrs. White's dangerous illness, who was appointed to attend the Princess of Orange in Holland. God preserve her highness, and make her voyage and abode there prosperous. The wind blew westerly on the morning of the 19th of November, and in consequence, all was early astir in the palaces of Whitehall and St. James, in preparation for the departure of the orange bride and bridegroom. The princess took leave of her beloved home of St. James, and came to Whitehall Palace, as early as nine in the morning, to bid farewell to her royal aunt, Queen Catherine. Mary, when she approached, was weeping piteously, and her majesty, to comfort her, told her to consider how much better her case was than her own, for when she came from Portugal, she had not even seen King Charles. But, madam, rejoined the Princess of Orange, remember, you came into England, I am going out of England. The princess wept grievously all the morning, continues Dr. Lake. She requested the Duchess of Monmouth to come often to see the Lady Anne, her sister, and to accompany her to the chapel, the first time she appeared there. She also left two letters to be given to her sister as soon as she recovered. What a contrast is this tender heart, clinging to her family, in Mary's conduct, 
after ten years' companionship with a partner to whom her reluctant hand had been given. The wind was fair to Holland, the tide served, the royal barges were in waiting at Whitehall Stairs, and King Charles and the Duke of York were ready with half the nobility and gentry in London to accompany the princess and her husband down the river as far as Erith, where the bridal party was to dine. Here Mary took a heart-rending farewell of her father and uncle, and in the afternoon she embarked at Gravesend with her husband and suite, in one of the royal yachts, several English and Dutch men-of-war being in attendance, to convey the gay bark to Holland. The celebrated poet, Nat Lee, describes the embarkation in his poem on the marriage and departure of the Princess of Orange, and as he declares that he was an eyewitness of the scene, it is possible that the parties grouped themselves, according to his lines, but it is as evident that he knew nothing of the dangerous illness of the Princess Anne. That must have been kept from the public, for he supposes that she was present. The following are the best of the lines of this now-forgotten historical poem. Hail, happy warrior, hail, whose arms have won the fairest jewel of the English crown. Hail, princess, hail, thou fairest of thy kind, thou shape of angel with an angel's mind. But hark, tis rumored that this happy pair must go. The prince for Holland does declare, I saw them launch. The prince, the princess bore, while the sad court stood crowding on the shore. The prince still bowing on the deck did stand, and held his weeping consort by the hand which, waving oft, she bade them all farewell, and wept as if she would the briny ocean swell. Farewell, thou best of fathers, best of friends. While the grieved duke with a deep sigh commends, to heaven his child, in tears his eyes would swim, but manly virtue stays them at the brim. Farewell, she cried, my sister, thou dear part, the sweetest half of my divided heart, my little love. Her sighs she did renew, once more, O oh heavens, a long, a last adieu. Part, must I ever lose those pretty charms? Then swoons and sinks into the prince's arms. This is somewhat fustian and commonplace, and the theatrical farewell to the Lady Anne, the sheer invention of the poet. Other thoughts were working in the brain of Orange than those surmised by Nat Lee. The Duke of York ought to have seen his son-in-law safely out of the kingdom, for before William of Orange actually departed, he contrived to play him one of the tricks by which he finally supplanted him in the affections of the English people. The wind changed by the time the Dutch fleet had dropped down to Sheerness. It baffled the mariners and remained contrary for thirty or forty hours, at the end of which time the King and Duke of York sent an express to entreat the prince and princess to come down the river and remain with them at Whitehall. Instead of which, they went on shore at Sheerness and were entertained by Colonel Dorrell, the governor. The next day, November the 23rd, they crossed the country to Canterbury, the princess being only accompanied by Lady Inchiquin, one of the Villiers sisters, and a dresser, the prince by his favorites, Bentinct and Odike. Here an extraordinary circumstance took place. One contemporary witness vouches, that his authority was no other than the mouth of Archbishop Tolitson himself, from whose narration it was written down. The Prince and Princess of Orange, when they arrived at an inn in Canterbury, found themselves in a destitute condition, for want of cash, as they had been unkindly and secretly thrust out of London by King Charles and the Duke of York, from jealousy, lest the Lord Mayor should invite them to a grand civic feast. 
the prince to relieve his wants sent bentick to represent them to the corporation and beg a loan of money it is very plain that the corporation of canterbury considered the whole application as a case of mendicity or fictitious distress for the request was denied however there happened to be present dr tolletson the dean of canterbury who hurried home gathered together all the plate and ready money in guineas he had at command and bringing them to the inn begged an interview with monsieur bentick and presented them to him with the hope that they would be serviceable to their highnesses entreating withal that they would quit a situation so unworthy of their rank and come to stay at the deanery which was usually the abode of all the royal company that came to the city the prince accepted the plate and money with warm thanks but declined going to the deanery dr tolletson was presented and kissed the hand of the princess in this hospitable transaction no blame can be attached to dr tolletson whose conduct was becoming the munificence of the church he had entered why the prince of orange did not request a loan or supply by the express that his uncles affectionately sent to invite him back to whitehall instead of presenting himself and his princess in a state of complaining mendicity at canterbury is inconsistent with plain dealing as he had been paid the first installment of the forty thousand pounds which was the portion of the princess his credit was good in england and he might have obtained a supply of money sufficient for a few days at an inn from his friend the prime minister danby the fact is that the birth of the young brother of mary had rendered this ambitious politician desperate and he was making a bold dash at obtaining partisans by representing himself as an ill-treated person nor were his efforts ultimately fruitless if the following statement of a contemporary be correct and all circumstances corroborate it by this accident dr tolleson began that lucky acquaintance and correspondence with the prince and princess of orange and mr bentick as afterwards advanced him to an archbishopric the prince and princess of orange lingered no less than four days at their inn in canterbury cultivating the acquaintance of their new friend dr tolleson and receiving the congratulations of the gentry and nobility of kent in whose eyes william seemed sedulously to render himself an object of pity and distress for great quantities of provisions were given by them for his use he left canterbury november the twenty seventh and went that night with the princess and her train on board the montague at margate commanded by sir john holmes who set sail the next day the ice prevented the fleet from entering the maze but the princess and her spouse after a quick but stormy passage were landed at tethudo a town on the holland coast and went direct to hounslarkdyke palace it was remarked that the princess of orange was the only female on board who did not suffer from seasickness the princess besides the lady inchiquin that is mary villiers was accompanied by elizabeth and anne villiers the mother of these sisters her late governess expired of the smallpox at st james's palace before the prince of orange had finished his mysterious transactions at canterbury the princess had likewise with her in the capacity of maid of honour mary roth or worth a relative of the sydney family each of these girls disquieted her married life both the unmarried villiers were older than herself and she was eclipsed in the eyes of her sullen lord by their maturer charms the prince of orange fell in love with elizabeth villiers and scandal was likewise afloat relative to him and her sister anne 
who subsequently married his favorite, Bentick. Much wonder is expressed by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, and likewise by Swift, who were both her acquaintances, how it was possible for Elizabeth Villiers to rival the Princess Mary in the heart of her spouse, for Elizabeth, although a fine woman, had not a handsome face. I always forget myself and talk of squinting people before her, says Swift in his journal, and the good lady squints like a dragon. As soon as possible, after the arrival of the Princess of Orange at Hounslark Dyke Palace, the States General of Holland sent their Hofmaster Dinter to compliment her and the Prince, and to know of them, when it would be seasonable for them to offer their congratulation in a formal manner. The Prince and Princess did not make their public entry into The Hague until December the 14th, so long were the Mynheers preparing their formalities, which were perpetrated with extraordinary magnificence. Twelve companies of burghers were in arms, drawn up under their respective ensigns, and the bridge of The Hague was adorned with green garlands, under which was written a Latin inscription, in honor of the illustrious pair, of which the following is our author's English version. Hail, sacred worthy, blessed in that rich bed, at once thy Mary and thy Belgia wed, and long, long live thy fair Britannic bride, her orange and her country's equal pride. Having passed the bridge, they were met by four and twenty virgins, who walked two and two on each side, their highnesses' coach, singing and strewing green herbs all the way. When their highnesses came before the townhouse, they passed through a triumphal arch, adorned with foliage and grotesco work, with the arms of both their highnesses, and over them two hands, with a Latin motto thus rendered in English. What halcyon airs this royal hymen sings, the olive branch of peace her dower she brings. In the Hoogstraat, they passed under another triumphal arch, with this inscription, To the Batavian court, with heaven's best smile, approach, fair guest, and bless this happy pile. In the evening, Mary was welcomed with a grand display of fireworks, in which were represented St. George on horseback, fountains, pyramids, castles, triumphal chariots, Jupiter and Mars descending from the skies, a lion, a duck, and a drake, emblematic, we suppose, of ditches and canals. Likewise castles, flower pots, and a variety of other devices, in honor of their auspicious alliance. The next day, the Heer van Ghent, and a variety of other Heers, whose Dutch names would not be of much interest to British readers, complimented their highnesses in the name of the States General, which compliment was soon after repeated by the States in a body. Though Mary's chief residence and principal court in Holland was at The Hague, yet she had several other palaces, as Loo, Hounslarkdyke, and Deren. It deserves notice that King Charles, when he communicated the marriage to the French ambassador, mentions his niece in his official dispatch as the Princess Mary. In earlier times, it has been shown that the title of princess was scarcely vouchsafed to the eldest daughter of the reigning sovereign, if she had a brother in existence. Dr. Lake, remarking on the unbounded popularity of this marriage in England, declares, There were no gloomy countenances in court, excepting Barillon, the French ambassador, and Bennett, Lord Arlington. Louis the Fourteenth took the marriage heinously. For many months, he would not be reconciled to his cousin German, the Duke of York. For, wrote he to that prince, 
you have given your daughter to my mortal enemy. This was not the fault of the Duke of York, for Lord Dartmouth records an anecdote that the Duke of York, on first hearing of this marriage, or perhaps after seeing the tearful agonies of Mary, when she heard her doleful sentence of consignment to her cousin, remonstrated with his brother by a confidential friend, reminding his majesty that he solemnly promised never to give away Mary without he, her father, gave his full consent to her marriage. So I did, it's true, man, exclaimed Charles with his characteristic humor. But odds fish, James must consent to this. End of section 18